of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. If you're using a pew Bible and, uh, and the pew in front of you, it should be uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and that will be on page 932. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we're in the midst of a sermon series called New, uh, New Year, New Love, talking about love in the church. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, how to love. How are we as Christians to love one another specifically? What does it look like? What does it look like for me and you in this church to love one another? Well, I think Paul gives us a good clue in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. I hope you're there or close to it. Let's pray. We'll dive right in. Father, we pray that you would bless the teaching and preaching and hearing and living out of your word, that you would teach us, uh, grant us grace, that we might love one another well. In particular today, as we learn what love is and what it isn't and what it always does, help us, we pray, to manifest these things in our life and in the life of this church. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, the story is told about a small country church, much like ours, and uh, the pastor called for a a special congregational meeting uh, because they needed to purchase a brand new chandelier. Well, of course, after some discussion, pros and cons, back and forth, uh, an old farmer, a longtime member of the congregation, stood up and said this. He said, buying a new chandelier, pastor, may seem like a good idea to you. But I am against it for three reasons. Number one, first of all, it's too expensive. We simply can't afford it. Number two, there isn't anybody around here who knows how to play one. And number three, what we really need in this church is a new light fixture. Well, sometimes today, churches can be infamous for their infighting and backbiting and quite simply, their lack of love. And we should be somewhat encouraged because not only is it like that today, but it was like that all the way back in Paul's day. Because when Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote to a church that was struggling mightily to love one another. I just want to give you a sample of some of the things that we see in the book that demonstrate their lack of love for one another. Instead of experiencing unity through love, they were being divided because of their pride, chapters 1 through 4. Instead of working out their differences in the body, they were taking each other to court. There were lawsuits from one to another. We see that in chapter 6. Instead of giving up the right to eat any food that they wanted, they were demanding it at the expense of the conscience of a brother or sister, chapter 8. Instead of sharing their food when they came together to share communion meal, the rich were glutting themselves with fancy food, and the poor who had none were simply going hungry. Chapter 11. And instead of exercising their spiritual gifts, chapter 12, to the benefit of each other in the church, they were actually using their spiritual gifts to build each, uh, to build themselves up. And they were denigrating the people in the church who had less showy or flashy spiritual gifts, calling them second class citizens, chapter 12. Dr. Constable hits it on the head when he says this, As we have seen throughout this epistle, the Corinthians needed to love one another. It's not coincidental, he writes, that the great chapter on love, that the greatest chapter on love in the Bible, appears in this letter to such an unloving church. And of course, the chapter that we're talking about is the love chapter, right? If you're familiar with the Bible, if you've been to a wedding then you know the chapter that I'm talking about. Of course, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And while it's often read at weddings, and and rightly so, it's a beautiful uh, story and portrait of love, did you know that the chapter on love, the greatest chapter on love, 
in my opinion, in the whole Bible, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, is actually about how I am supposed to love you. And it's actually about how you are supposed to love each other. Because 1 Corinthians is not about marriage. It's about love in the church. And so here's what we're going to do today. First of all, we're going to talk about the superiority of love in the church. The superiority of love in the church, verses 1 through 3. Second, we're going to talk about the substance of love. And we'll spend most of our time here. What does love in the church practically look like? How will we know? if we are loving one another the way we should be. And then third, we'll see the survival of love, verses 8 through 13. That is that love in the church, among Christians, it will last forever. So let's begin. Let's take a look at our Bibles in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, where we see the superiority of love. You know, the Corinthians had a problem. They thought that spirituality and Christian maturity rested upon the exercise of spiritual gifts, particularly the more ecstatic gifts of speaking in tongues. But here, on the heels of talking about that, he moves into chapter 13 to tell the Corinthians and to tell us that the main mark of spirituality, the main mark of Christian maturity, is not the exercise of spiritual gifts. It's the exercise of Christian love. Let's read the text together. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give my body over to to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Here in these verses, Paul poetically and powerfully illustrates the foolishness of any Christian who exercises a, a spiritual gift, even to its greatest degree, but lacks love for their fellow Christian. F.F. Bruce sums it up really well. He says, A Christian community, a church, can make shift somehow if the gifts of chapter 12 be lacking. It will die if love is absent. The most lavish exercise of spiritual gifts cannot compensate for a lack of love. And so, friends, we need to heed the warning that Paul gives to the church in Corinth. We need to be careful not to adopt a a, a false view of Christian spirituality and maturity. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does a mature Christian look like, right? What, What are we aiming for? What does it look like to be spiritually mature? Is it what the Corinthians thought? Is it the exercise of a spiritual gift? Some say gifts. Some say abilities. Some say some activities that we may do for God. What about you? Some people look at the person who has a charismatic personality and they say, that person is spiritual. Some people look at uh, a person and, and they know the Bible back and forth. They have forgotten more of the Bible than you will ever know, right? And they say, that is a mature Christian. Others look at spiritual gifts, maybe even supernatural signs, and they say, that is true spirituality. But what does Paul say here is the dominant, overarching marker or characteristic of a spirit, spirit-filled, mature Christian. Friends, he says it's, it's love. So he starts off by saying, love is superior. It's superior to the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church. We need to love one another. So having seen that, 
Let's move on to its substance. And here's where the rubber meets the road. What does it look like for you to love the person sitting next to you in the pew? What does it look like for us to be a loving church? I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the proof is in the pudding, right? The proof is in the pudding. Paul turns to list several actions and several attitudes of love that demonstrate genuine Christian love for one another. He's essentially saying the proof of your love is in the pudding of your actions, right? So let's take a look at a list of things that he says is the substance of the love that we are to have for one another. He begins with two things. Two things that love is. Let's take a look together. Number one, verse four. He says, love is patient. Love is patient. Patience is the ability to be wronged by a fellow Christian and not retaliate. It is the opposite of having a short fuse, of having a a quick temper. And so we need to ask, are we patient with the people who are around us, who work in the ministries with us, who sit in the pews next to us, right? Are we patient with people here in the church? Number two, love is not only patient. He says love is kind, Love is kind. It's a, it's a word that Paul likely coined. It's two words in the Greek that he puts together. The first word is the word to use. And the second word is the, is the word grace. So what does Paul mean when he says that we need to be kind to one another? Quite literally, he says that we need to use grace. In my relationship with you, I need to use grace. In your relationship with the other people in this church, you need to use grace. And so are the relationships, your relationships in this church, marked by the characteristic of grace? Well, love is patient. It's, it's kind. But now he turns to tell us what love is not. And he lists eight things. Eight things that love is not. So that we can know if we are these things, well, then we're not exercising Christian love, right? Number one, he says, it does not envy. It does not envy. To be envious, of course, is to be upset at the success or fortune of somebody else, right? The root word in Greek literally means to boil, to boil over. The other day, it was maybe a week ago, I, uh, uh, it was kind of chaotic and I was boiling water, probably for mac and cheese because that's what my girls eat almost every day for lunch. And so I had a pan of, of water on and I turned it up and then I was busy with the girls and uh, it was boiling and boiling and I almost let it boil dry, right? You start to smell something, you're like, oh, I need to check the pan, right? I almost let it uh, boil over. You know, envy can be like that. If we don't keep an eye out for it, the next time somebody drives in the church parking lot with a new car that maybe we've been eyeing, and boom, our envy just boils over, doesn't it? It kind of rises up. And so we need to, friends, be careful with envy in the church. Love is not envious, but not only that. He says it doesn't boast. It's not boastful. Paul uses a picturesque word here. Literally, he says, um, love is not a wind bag. You know what a wind bag is, right? It's someone who talks and talks and talks and talks about themselves. Quite literally, Paul says, love is not like a wind bag, right? I uh, was able to take a trip with a few other pastors uh, about a week ago, and uh, we had a great time together. But sometimes, 
pastors can be a little proud and you start to play this one-up game. Well, this is going on in my ministry. Well, what's going on in yours? Well, in my Sunday school class. And uh, at one point, one of the pastors said to another, and it wasn't me, thankfully. He said, uh, he said you, uh, you know what you are? And he was kind of teasing, but kind of not, right? He said, you know, you know what you are? And he said, well, what, what? What is that? And he said, you're a topper. You're a topper. And we said, what's a topper? And he said, you always have to, have to top the story that I'm telling, right? I tell about a trip here, and you tell about a trip that's better. It's being boastful, right? It's being a windbag. And so, friends, when we talk and share in the church, love is not boastful. Number three, it's not proud. He says, pride and love are opposites of one another. Literally, this refers to a person who is puffed up. He says, love is not puffed up. That is a person who makes themselves bigger and better than they actually are. I'm sure you're familiar or maybe seen a picture of a, of a blowfish, you know, a blowfish in the ocean. What they do as a defense mechanism is they're a rather small fish, but when an enemy comes, what do they do? Well, they puff up, right? They blow up and they have these spikes on the end of their skin that if you hit them, apparently it's poisonous, and that's how they protect themselves. They make themselves look bigger than they actually are. Paul says, if you love your neighbor, if you love your fellow Christian, you're not going to make yourself look bigger and better and more spiritual than you actually are. Love is not proud. Number four, it does not dishonor others. This refers to any speech about a person. When you're talking about someone else that is dishonorable or rude or indecent, I think what Paul is saying here is that In the body of Christ, we need to use our manners. You know, your mama taught you them, right? You need to use your manners. You need to be courteous. You need to be kind. You need to look at your fellow Christian in the eye when they walk by and say hello, shake their hand, pat them on the back, give them a hug, at least acknowledge that they're here, right? Say hello. It does not dishonor others. Number five. He says, love is not self-seeking. This simply describes a person who always has to have their way. They always have to have their way in their ministry, in their committee, in whatever it is that they're doing in the life of the church. It always has to be their way, not your way. Are you like that, friend? Paul says, love in the church, it's not self-seeking. Number six, it's not easily angered. He says, as we relate to one another in the church, we should not be easily angered irritated by each other. We should not be easily uh, become grouchy with one another. Karl Barth, the German theologian, once said, once said of a man who, a Christian man, who got on his nerves, quote, love cannot alter the fact that he gets on my nerves, but, but it can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. And so friends, In any church, there will be people that just rub you wrong. They will irritate you. You don't, you just don't get along, right? You don't, it just doesn't click. But what Paul says is when we love, we don't allow that irritation to become unlove, right? Number seven, it keeps no records of wrongs. Boy, this is a hard one. 
isn't it? Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is an accounting term. It's an accounting term that Paul uses. When I was in college, I got a business degree, and so I had to have, I believe, three accounting classes to get a business management degree at Texas A&M. And uh, I did okay in each of them, but I struggled to kind of understand the concepts. It works out because I married an accountant, right? So there we go. It works out. Um, But I, I struggled. Is it a credit or is it a debit? Should it go on this side or should it go on that side? What does it mean to make this balance? I was, I was very confused even though I, I, I got along okay. Paul uses an accounting term describing the writing down in a ledger book the idea of a debt. That is somebody owes me and I'm going to write it down. The idea is that when we are wronged, we write this debt in our ledger book of our mind or our heart and then we tell ourselves we owe them. We're going to pay them back, right? Keeps no record of wrongs. Warren Wearsby says this, one of the most miserable men that I ever met was a professed Christian who actually kept in a notebook a list of wrongs he felt others had committed against him. Now friends, I don't know if you have an actual notebook of wrongs committed against you, but I'm guessing if you're like me, we have a notebook in our mind of people, maybe people in the church who have wronged us. Are you writing that down or are you erasing it? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. Number eight, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. That is, love in no way delights in any kind of immorality or misfortune on anyone. In addition, love rejoices in that which is true. Friends, let's not buy this modern lie. Let's not buy a modern lie that truth and love are opposite. That we can't speak the truth to someone and tell them what is right and what is wrong. It is not loving to call that which is bad, good. And to call that which is good, bad. Because love, true love, it delights not in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. So we've seen two things that love is, eight things that love is not. I hope you're taking a a spiritual inventory in your life. How are you doing on these things? I hope you're doing better than I was when I took it. Number, number, uh, Number one. The next section ends with four things. Four things that love always does. We've seen two things that love is, eight things that love uh, is not. But Paul ends with four things that love always does. It always protects, number one. It always protects. The basic meaning of the word is to cover. And the idea is that we cover up or conceal in somebody else or about somebody else news that if it came to light, it might hurt their reputation. It always protects. It always trusts, number two. That is, it's eager to believe the best about the other person. It's eager to understand the circumstances that surround their activity and actions. It gives them the benefit of the doubt. So friends, let me ask you, do you always talk about the worst in people or the best in people? Do you talk about their faults or their strengths? Are you willing to consider the circumstances that caused them to do such and such an action before we make a judgment upon them? It always protects. It always trusts. Number three, it always hopes. It always hopes Friends, love is not an unreasonable optimist that dismisses reality, but rather, as Morris says, love refuses to take failure as final. I love that. When we love each other, we refuse to take the failure of a Christian brother or sister 
as final. It is hopeful that those who have failed us in the past will not fail us again. And it doesn't conclude inevitably that because they failed us in the past, that they'll fail us in the future. Love always hopes. And number four, it always perseveres. It always perseveres. That is, it remains steadfastly devoted to the person in the face of difficulty or unpleasant circumstances. When the going gets tough for the other person, we don't get going, right? That's what he says. It always perseveres. So are you a fleer or are you a fighter in your relationship with other Christians? Well, that's quite a list, right? It's quite a, an inventory. How are we doing? How are you doing as a church? Well, we've seen the superiority and the substance of love. And let's close this sermon in verse 8 through 13 by looking at the survival of love. The survival of love. This is amazing. Here Paul says that love should not only characterize the church now, but that love will characterize the people of God forever into eternity. It will last forever. He starts with a statement of the enduring nature of love against the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. Let's take a look at verse 8. He says, love never fails. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall be fully known. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Paul uses two illustrations to hammer home the point. Here's the point of this section. There's so much that we could talk about, but here's the point as it relates to what we're talking about. He uses these illustrations to drive home a point, and here's the point. There will be a day when we don't need spiritual gifts. There will be a day when we don't need teachers to teach us about God and how to obey him. So don't rejoice too much that there's going to be a day you don't need me, okay? Not too much, but a little bit, right? There will be a day when we don't need prophecy to teach us about God or for people to speak in tongues God's message to the lost. There will be a day, Paul says, when spiritual gifts will, <coughs> will cease. And that day will come when we are in eternity, when we are in his presence, when we are with the saints of old and new forever and ever. And in that day, what will remain? Take a look at verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So this is what this means. Our love for one another will exist into eternity. The love that we show one another will continue into eternity. This life in this church is just practiced for the big show of eternity. It's a dress rehearsal. You know what a dress rehearsal is, right? It's a dress rehearsal, so to speak, so that when we get to heaven, we'll know how to love one another. And so my love for you and your love for each other will exist. We will love one another into eternity. Love will survive. That's why it's the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love. So what have we seen this morning? We've seen love is superior to spiritual gifts. We've seen the substance of it. 
And we have to ask ourselves, does that describe our relationships with people here at Grace? And we have seen its survival. But I don't know about you. When I look at this list, in particular verses 4 through 7, and I see love, it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it's not proud, it's not, it's not self-seeking, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. As I look through this list, I can't help but think of the love of God, right? Because you and I do these things imperfectly. We won't love each other perfectly, but God, but God loves us in this way absolutely perfectly. We look at the list, right? And we see Jesus, do we not? We see this kind of love. He is the epitome of love. So here's how we will end our service. I will pray. And we're going to sing a couple songs about the love of God for us in Christ. It is incredible. God loves us patiently, kindly. God loves us with protection and trust and hope. It perseveres, right? This is a God kind of love. So we'll sing a few songs to remind ourselves of the source of love, which is God. And then we'll share in communion together. We will be reminded of the love of God in the person of Christ, that his body was torn for us and that his blood was shed for us. So let's pray, and then I'll invite you to stand and sing. Father, we thank you for this text on love that shows us what love is. It shows us what our love is to be for one another, and it shows us your love for us. And so now as we turn to sing about your love, give our hearts great joy as we think and sing and praise you for your incredible love, in particular as we remember the love of Christ, Christ on the cross, his body broken and his blood shed. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing, church.